Okay, so <clears throat> today's topic, today and next week, we're going to cover a topic that is the most dangerous topic we're going to cover uh, in the whole class. Um, it is. It really is a dangerous topic to cover. Uh, one, George, as George reminded me, it's almost impossible to preach about without preaching some kind of heresy of some sort. Okay? Uh, it is... The reason being that it is the most misunderstood and the most uh, ineffable. I mean, there is, there's really no way to understand it, and so any kind of human metaphor we try to apply is always going to have some fault with it, right? And the topic today is the Holy Trinity. So let me start out. Um, let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, who dost continually enrich thy church with a new offspring, increase the, the faith and understanding of our catechumens, that they, being bo born again in the water of baptism, may be numbered among the sons of thine adoption, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, so as always, we're going to start with Steve. Steve. For the record, this is B to B number 63. This is, um, and Steve is happy today. Well, Steve's always happy. <laughs> Steve's happy to have a job in New York City. So, um, uh, as you know, these these videos are all on YouTube. Uh, if you do a search for Y2AM, uh, they are produced by the uh, young, Youth and Young Adult Ministry Department of the Greek Archdiocese. So, you, all you have to do is search for B2B or Y2AM, and you'll find them. So today. We, there's a hundred and something videos. We're, we're only going to do maybe 23. Today. Um, not today. <laughs> um, maybe if we, you know, I thought we'd do like two or three a week, and we're going to be lucky to do one a week. So, Peter, um, how do we find them? I'm sorry. Why? If you go to YouTube, yeah. search for Y. Yeah, search for B to B or Y2AM. You're all okay. Y. And they're all really good. Yeah, and they're all really good. Well, I'm thinking about for my absolutely. Somebody asked me earlier today, they said, they said, I have a friend who has questions about the Orthodox Church. Can they listen to your, your, your classes on, online? Sure. But there's also, I mean, there's all kinds of resources. This is one resource, um, and it's a good one. Um, so this is what we're using, uh, the B2B series. So, and it's originally made for youth and young adults, so uh, it's, it's not going to be. There's another video I found on the Holy Trinity. And it's Bishop Callistos sitting for 41 minutes, <laughs> talking in his beautiful, lilting voice that just... He even fell asleep during one of his own lectures. So he admitted that to us. I, I was at one of his lectures, and he said, that's why I lecture standing up, because he actually was seated for one of his lectures, and he fell asleep. So, let's start with Steve. Hey everybody, this is Steve, and if you've ever been confused by the Christian belief in the Holy Trinity, you're definitely not alone. After all, how can God be both three and one? This confusion comes from the tension between two basic beliefs about God, monotheism and polytheism. Monotheism is the belief that there's only one God, while polytheism is the belief that there are many gods. Criticisms of polytheism go all the way back to ancient times. In Plato's Euthyphro, for example, written back when people believed in the 12 Olympian gods, you can read about how Socrates identified some of the confusion that results from polytheism. 
Like Zeus and Apollo are arguing, for example. Who are we supposed to follow? What is good if different gods are taking different sides? Christians, like Jews and Muslims and others, are monotheists. We believe in one God. But non-Christians, and even lots of Christians, don't understand how belief in a holy trinity is belief in one God. To answer that question, we need to first understand the difference between nature and person. Nature, or essence, is what something is. So when we're talking about human nature, for instance, we're talking about what it means to be human. Persons, on the other hand, are how or who something is. So when we're talking about particular human person, we're not talking about humanity in the abstract, what it means to be human. We're talking about human nature as it's expressed in particular people. Though there may be billions of human persons walking around at this very moment, there's only one human nature. And what makes me a human, rather than a tree or a tea kettle or a top hat, is that I express that human nature. What I am is human. How I am, or who I am, is Steve, a particular person. Like we talked about last week, who I am is found in my relationship with others, with family, with friends, with total strangers. And most important of all, who I am is found in my relationship with God. However, we need to be careful. Human nature and human persons can be a nice starting point for thinking about the Holy Trinity, but like any comparison, it's not perfect. For instance, you and I are distinct and unique human persons. You are not me, I am not you. And that distinction is what allows us to be who we are, and not just abstract humanity. But in our lives, that distinction usually deepens into something else. So instead of just being separate and unique, we become divided. We disagree, we argue, we fight, we even kill. My will becomes opposed to your will. The line between us that marks our uniqueness becomes a border that marks our conflict. This is the result of our sin, of our failure to love completely and unconditionally. Things are different with the Holy Trinity. God the Father is unique. He is not the Son, and He is not the Holy Spirit. There's a distinction, but that distinction isn't corrupted into division. The three divine persons of the Holy Trinity share everything and are perfectly united in love. That's why our prayer is always Trinitarian always directed at Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together. Pay attention the next time you participate in the Divine Liturgy. For instance, sometimes we address prayers to the Holy Trinity generally. For you are holy, our God, and to you we give glory, to the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, now and forever, and to the ages of ages. Even when we speak primarily to one person, we never forget the other two. For you, Christ our God, are the light of our souls and bodies, and to you we give glory, together with your Father who is without beginning, and your all-holy, good, and life-giving Spirit, now and forever, and to the ages of ages. The three persons of the Holy Trinity are united in their divinity, in what they are, their nature. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Yet the three are unique. Not in what they are, but in how or who they are. The Father is God unbegotten. The Son is God begotten of the Father. The Holy Spirit is God who proceeds from the Father. If you don't fully understand what begotten of and proceeds from mean, don't worry. St. John of Damascus calls them both incomprehensible and unknowable. 
What's important is that these words show the distinction of the three divine persons of the Holy Trinity, though they remain perfectly united in their perfect love. Love is a really important thing to keep in mind whenever we're talking about God. As St. John the Evangelist tells us in his first epistle, God is love. Love exists in our connection and relationship with others. It's not something self-directed, it's other-directed. When we say that God is love, we're not saying that God loves himself. We're saying that the one God we worship is a community of three divine persons, perfectly united in their perfect love. We're saying that we believe in our Father who is without beginning, in his only begotten Son, and in his all-holy, good, and life-giving Spirit. So let's be the bee and pray to the Holy Trinity. Be the bee and live orthodoxy. Remember to like and subscribe. I'll see you all next week. Okay. <clears throat> so, funny how I thought I had two things to prepare for this week. Uh, a class and a sermon, but <laughs> it was all the same. <laughs> um, it really was. Uh, so, there's some terms we want to go through here, because um, there's a lot in this video. Um, first off, let's talk about the first thing he brought up, which was uh, monotheism versus polytheism. Okay, um, There are ancient religions, both monotheistic and polytheistic. There are modern religions, both monotheistic and polytheistic. Mono meaning one. Poly meaning many, right? So, uh, what are examples of um, polytheistic religions in the world today? The Greeks, the Romans. Today. Oh, today? Hinduism. Hinduism. Hinduism is the biggest one. Yeah, Hinduism is a polytheistic religion. Um, you have uh, various, not only do you have various gods, you have various incarnations of those gods, various avatars of those gods. Shiva, Kali, representing different aspects of the universe. Um, and there are a lot of Hindus in the world. Um, any others you can think of? Mormonism? I wouldn't, no, I wouldn't count Mormonism as, because there's still the distinction between creator and created. Um, Mormonism, while it is not Christian, it is still monotheistic. Uh, I, I would put it that way. Now, Mormonism in, in Mormonism, you have the potential to become godlike or or a god. And my glasses just broke, so um, that's okay. So, um, but but as a religion, it's not. So, um, what about monotheistic religions other than Christianity? Judaism, Islam. Um, those are the big ones, right? Are there um, any others? Zoroastrianism uh, is, which is um, in it's it's Persian originally. Um, there are a lot of uh, parallels uh, in Zoroastrianism to Christianity that followed it, and so. Um, but they believe in one God. Um, his name is Ahura Mazda, and um, I've actually seen. I was driving south on 35 one time, and I actually saw a car with the Zoroastrian. Um, unfortunately, they've been persecuted in Iran uh, by the Muslims, and, and so they're kind of rare. 
the most famous Zoroastrian probably in the late in the 20th century. Anybody know? Freddie Mercury of Queen. He Whoa. was Zoroastrian. Really? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah. cool. Yeah. Bob Marley was Orthodox. Bob Marley. What? Yeah. He, Bob Marley became uh, Ethiopian Orthodox. Yeah. So. Um, so yeah. So we have monotheistic and polytheistic religions. Now, there's a bunch of terms that we start talking about when we start talking about the Trinity. And most of them we get from philosophy. Is philosophy bad? No. No. But philosophy can be completely used to describe our theology. We borrow from philosophy to describe theological principles, and, but, um, and for some it becomes a god. So... Uh, but we can't really you know, rely on philosophical terms, but we do use them. So um, the first one we want to talk about is this. It's, you'll see interchange somewhat nature, substance, and essence. Okay? So we'll say that, that God is three persons but one nature. Right? We'll say that Christ was um, one person and two natures. Okay? Um, we use the terms substance and essence almost interchangeably. There's some subtle differences, but not enough for us to worry about. Substance we use because that was the Latin term, substantia, and so all the Latin theologians used substance. Essence is, of course, the Greek term. It um, comes from the word, you'll see the word usia, and we'll come back to that word in a second. So when Steve talks about we have one Human nature. Um, what does that mean? What does that mean? What is our nature? Well, this is a problem that philosophers have talked about for quite some time. Um, and kind of the, the thing that we use perhaps the most is um, the way Aristotle talked about it. He talked about everything has a substance and then it has accidents. Okay, accidents not as in a crash, but but just the things that happen to um, to have what it looks like. Okay, so for example, um, this is a cell phone. Okay, it has a substance to it that makes it a cell phone. Okay, there are things that you can change about it, and it wouldn't be a cell phone. But you, there are a lot of things you can change about it, and it would still be a cell phone. Right, and there are other cell phones that look like it, but aren't exactly it. Right, but the essence of it is, it's a cell phone. All right. So, the accidents of it, though, happen to be that it's got a black rubber cover on it, and it's got a glass screen, and it has a little glowing light up here that tells me there's something I haven't checked on it, and everything that it looks like or that you can describe it physically as, those are accidents. Right? So, for example, um, we are all human beings in here. That is our essence. That is our substance. That is our nature. Right? But there are things about us that are different in terms of the accidents. So, for example... It is. Think of it as features. Okay. But that's the term he used, and that's why I'm using it. Okay. okay. So, but it's, it's called, and the, the, I think the reason he used it is because 
the essence of something, it's almost accidental what it looks like. Think of it that way, too. It really doesn't matter. If the essence of something is, is something, then what it looks like is, doesn't really matter. Right? So, for example, we're all human beings in here, but some of us have blonde hair, some of us have brunette hair, some of us have gray hair. Right? Those are accidents. Okay? We could have no hair, but we would still be human beings. It doesn't define our essence. Okay? Um, one of the things we talk about, for example, is, is um, in terms of knowing God. Uh, St. Gregory Palamas later talked about the essence versus the energies of God. Um, and one of the analogies we use for that is the sun. Okay? We will not know the essence of the sun. Right? We can describe how it works. We can describe a lot of things about it. We can know it by the heat and the light that it generates, the energies that it generates, but we'll never know the essence of the sun, right? Um, and the same is true of God. We know the energies of God, which we normally call grace, for example, love. Those are the energies of God that we experience, but we will never know the divine essence. We'll never know what, it, like, for example, if I'm talking about a person, we know a person's activities, we know who they are, we know what organizations they belong to, but we don't know what's going on in their head. Think of it that way, okay? So one of the related terms then we'll talk about is, so that's what defines a person versus a nature or an essence. So there is God, and there is, uh, you know, and God has the divine nature. The Father is God. The Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, but the Father is not the Son, the Father is not the Holy Spirit, the Son is not the Father, the Son is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Father, and the Son, the Holy Spirit is not the Son, right? They are persons within the Holy Trinity. And I talked today in my sermon about how there can be no unity without love. Well, there is perfect unity in God because God is love, and God has perfect love, Okay? And as Steve talked about, as human beings, yes, we may share a nature, but we can never share that perfect love that God has. So we can never be in the perfect unity that God experiences. Right? Okay? So what makes the Father different than the Son than the Holy Spirit? Well, we say that the Son is begotten of the Father, and we say that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father. Okay? So, um, what does that mean? Well, we could do all kinds of doctorate dissertations on that. Okay, but those are the those are the terms that God Himself has given us, and that that that, that we have that we have learned. So, um, needless to say, this is a very difficult um, thing to understand. So, I'm trying to make sure where we are. Oh, so. Unfortunately, what this has led to is, um, and it, it is the main danger of what we're talking about today, which is, somebody told me to write big, so I'm writing big. <laughs> bubble letters. No, I don't do bubble letters. Shaded bubble letters. And I don't do little hearts above eyes either. <laughs> okay. Okay, so this is a word we hear often. When discussing the Holy, the Holy Trinity. Heresy. 
What is heresy? Anybody have a definition? False teaching. Wrong False belief. teaching, wrong belief. Okay. The actual Greek means private belief. Okay. And it means a belief that I may hold that is contrary to the teaching of the church, the community. Okay. It is where basically I have separated myself from the community with a wrong belief, um, and, and it's private as opposed to the public belief of the church, right? Okay? This may be accidental. It may be intentional. Okay? There have been more heresies generated through trying to explain the Holy Trinity than any other subject of the church because, the, like, like he said, it's incomprehensible. But we still feel this need to explain it. Especially when someone comes up to me and says, you know, comes up to any of us and says, well, I'm a Muslim. We only have one God. You have three. No, no, we don't. We have one God who is expressed in three persons. Okay? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, so. Oh, I skipped something. Okay, so there's a couple of other words we talked earlier about. Um, and, and this is where some of the heresies apply as well. There's a couple words. When we talk about essence or substance, there's two related terms that I want to talk about. I keep licking off the C. I don't know why. Essence. And I, and I put out here the Greek, usia, and that's, I'm, I'm going to refer back to it. Um here and I'll that's why I'm going ahead and writing it out okay when the church fathers were gathered in the first ecumenical council to come up with a description of what is what do Christians believe right they used a word that had been used in other basically I think the Gnostics actually introduced it but um, it, had, it does not appear in the Bible, which was a problem for some people. Um, but uh, there's the phrase in the creed. How many in here are actual catechumens? You too? Inquirers? Yes. Just answer yes. Smile and nod her heads. Okay, so the difference between... The, the difference between inquirers and catechumens are uh, it's it's almost it's pretty much the level of commitment. So at some point, when Father says you're ready, you'll be you'll he'll say, "Are you ready to be a catechumen?" And at that point, we'll have uh, a, a small service basically at the door of the church, and you'll be welcomed as catechumens. There's, it's just a stage on the way to um, full life in the church before chrismation. So. If I ask that question, don't worry about the distinction. Just say yes or no. <laughs> so one of the things we'll talk about is, is we're going to talk about the creed. Okay. Where does the word creed come from? Credo. Credo. Which means? I believe. I believe. Yes. Yes. So um, in the creed, there is the, the term... Let me make sure I don't misspell it. Oh, anyway, it's the term um, of one essence. Or we say of one substance because we our, our English translation comes from a Latin translation. 
okay? Being of one substance with the Father, okay? So there, the term that's actually used in the original creed, and I'm not going to try to write the, the Greek, um, is homoousion, which just means of one essence, okay? This term does not appear in the Bible, so it was a problem for some people. Um, they also, if they had a different definition of what they thought um, was the nature of the Trinity, they would use, instead of being of one essence, they would, use, they would stick an I in here, which made it um, of a similar substance, right? Okay, but, but we use homoousion, which is of one substance, of one essence, okay? We say that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all of one essence, okay? So if you ever see that term or you read this phrase, that's what that means. This is a critical phrase in the creed, okay, that distinguishes us from the, the heresy at the time of the first ecumenical council was Arianism, okay? Arius was a bishop of the church, and he taught there was a time when their son was not, okay? He did not preach that the son was eternally begotten of the father, okay? He said the father came first, then the son. But that's not what we believe. Okay? So, of one substance, of one essence. Next week, I'm, I'm not even sure I can find a B2B video about this, but next week we are going to cover the seven ecumenical councils. Um, and I will note that it is traditional that catechumens, inquirers, whoever, if you don't have it already, you're supposed to memorize the creed. So I don't know if he's going to make me teach you that, or test you on that or not. Funny you should mention that. Because I was just reading about that, and it's, it has that has an interesting history to it. Um, it's named after Athanasius, but it probably but it most likely was not written by Athanasius, because it was originally written in Latin, and Athanasius wrote in Greek. Um, it also has the filioque in it, which is the next term. Actually, it's the third term I'm going to discuss. The next term I want to discuss is, um, this is a term you hear too that has to deal with substance and essence, and it is transubstantiation, okay, or as the Greeks would say, I'm not going to write it in Greek, metaousion. <laughs> Again, you see this term usion, right? And what, is, what does trans mean? Across, yeah, across change substance, right? Same here. Um, change of essence, okay? Remember what we said the Greek name for the Feast of the Transfiguration was? Anybody remember? I gave you a hint, it has to do with butterflies. Oh, metamorphosis. Metamorphosis. Okay, so do we as Orthodox Christians believe in transubstantiation? No. The only person who got it right was him, and he's, he's the inquirer. <laughs> he said not according to the Catholic definition. Okay, well, okay. So the, the answer actually is yes and no. It's a trick question. Okay. Because there's been a lot written about it. One of the things that, that, 
that gets in the way of us just saying, yes, we believe this, or no, we believe in this, is the difference between, in the West, we refer to sacraments, right? And we try to define what they are. In the Orthodox Church, we don't talk about sacraments. We talk about mysteries. Okay? When the choir is not here, and everybody, there's that, that awkward pause before everybody realizes we're going to have to say another prayer. Anybody remember how that prayer starts? Of thy mystic supper of the Son of God. Accept me today as a communicant. Mystic. Mystery. It's mysterious. Okay? There is this need in the West, especially with the tradition of scholasticism, to describe and understand everything. Okay? We don't have that need. We say it's a mystery. Okay? The reason we, we shy away from this term is because not only do they say what happens, but they say when it happens. There is an explicit moment in the liturgy when, boom, suddenly it happens. We don't say that. We say, yes, something it happens, but we're not going to pin down in the liturgy when it is. Now, some theologians in the East, based on influence from the West, have tried to kind of pin it down as to when it happens, but not to the exactitude of the Catholic teaching on transubstantiation. Okay? What do we believe about communion? We talk about substance and accidents. What do we it's, believe happens? It's truly Christ's body and truly Christ's blood. It's, 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 it, it, and and in a, that's where, in an essence, in, 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 we kind of do believe in this, because what we believe is and, and what this doctrine also says is, while the, the look of it doesn't change, the accidents don't change, the underlying essence of it does. Okay? It is no longer essentially bread. It is no longer essentially wine. It is essentially the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Right? Okay? So this is why this term is used, meta-usion, because the essence of it, usia, changes. That's what happens. And so, yes, you can say Christ is present. Do we believe just... Now, what happens, though, is, is you know, there's kind of a spectrum on what people believe. There's, there's the, the transubstantiation that occurs at this exact time. Like a light switch. Like a light switch. And then, on the other hand, you have, you know, some Protestant denominations that say... It's just a memorial. It's still bread and wine. Or they may come a little further and say, well, in faith for us, it's the body and blood. Or they may say there's a real presence. Like somehow God just comes and inhabits this bread and wine. Right? But we don't, we don't go that, do that. We say that the essence of it actually changes. Okay? It's, and it's a miracle. It's a miracle every Sunday. If somebody ever says, have you seen a miracle? You can say, yes, every Sunday. It really is. Um, so that's, that's what this term means if you ever hear it. And so if somebody says, well, do you believe in transubstantiation? Yes, but not how you think. Or yes, but not in the actual same way exactly as the Roman Catholics. Okay? Well, what do you believe? It's a mystery. Is, is, it, is it the body and blood of Jesus Christ? Absolutely. How in particular does that occur? 
Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I uh, wanted to relate when I recall Father Anthony describing this subject okay. to me many years ago. Yes. And I want to get your take on it. Because uh -oh. when we talked about this, and uh, he basically said, when you said that, that stuck with me, he said, when Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood, mm -hmm. it, physical bread was not the physical body, or the accents as you're using that term today, mm -hmm. bread was not the accents of Christ. And we don't, and for that reason, we don't really fully understand exactly what Christ meant. But he clearly said, this is my body, this is my blood, and so on, and everything that goes with it. We're doing the exact same thing. So if you fully understood that mystery when Christ said it, you fully understand the communion today. But it's, he said that's what happened. You know, it's, the exact same thing. it's interesting, yes. And in the Roman Catholic Church, they say that this, this transubstantiation occurs at the words of institution. Mm -hmm. The words of institution being Christ saying, this is my body, this is my blood, right? Mm -hmm. But one of the corrections that was made to the Western liturgy by the Holy Synod of Moscow was that they told us we had to insert an explicit epiclesis. What's an epiclesis? Okay. Epiclesis is a calling... In, in the Roman Catholic Eucharistic prayer, it's a lifting up of, of the gifts to God. An epiclesis is an explicit calling down of the Holy Spirit. Okay, That's what Father Patrick taught. Send therefore thy Holy Spirit upon these thy gifts and creatures of bread and wine, that they may be changed. Mm -hmm. And we ring the bell. Mm -hmm. Okay? Because that is one of the changes that the Holy Synod of Moscow insisted must occur for our liturgy to be orthodox that we had to call down the Holy Spirit to make that change. Okay? So, um, now, is that the exact moment? Maybe. I'm, I'm not qualified to say. Yes? Regarding the mystery, what, what does it mean when we say that we won't speak of the mystery to thine enemies? Of thy mystic supper, O Son of God, for I am not speak of thy mystery to thine enemies, Neither will I give thee a kiss as did Judas. Um, I took that to mean that you don't try to explain it to people who are hostile. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, okay, not, do you know what, okay, so do you know, and, and here's why. You know where that prayer probably comes from? And I'm, I'm going out on a limb here, I'm, I'm extrapolating. Um, do you know where that, where that prayer probably comes from? Do you know what one of the charges um, on which Christians were brought up uh, to be executed was cannibalism. cannibalism. Someone spoke of the mysteries to the enemies, and they said, "Oh, so you're eating body and blood of a person? You're yeah. cannibal." Yeah. So we don't get into this with the enemies. The Christians brought back human sacrifice and cannibalism. That the Jews had gotten rid of it, and the Christians brought oh, it back. He said that. I didn't say. Yeah, and that's also tied into how catechumens used to be removed from the temple. Yeah, the doors, the doors. Yeah, in fact, um, before okay, because they weren't enemies, but they weren't fully Christian, and therefore did not need to be present during there, the a mystery, so that they would not be able to tell 
if they were spies, they would not be able to tell the authorities what was going on during... Well, it wasn't just that. Um, the reason, in, in the Eastern liturgy still, um, and really the only time you actually hear the full, part, the full extent of it is during Lent, there's, uh, bef- after the sermon, there's prayers for the catechumens and prayers for the hearers, who were hearers. Hearers were people who um, had committed some grievous sin and were um, denied communion, and so normally they sat in the narthex. Okay? The narthex of the church used to be larger. It would have seating as well, but the hearers sat outside. Okay, and there is a phrase, and, and at the end of those, there's, let, let the catechumens depart, let all the catechumens depart, let none but the faithful remain. And then the deacon turns and says, the doors, the doors, in wisdom let us attend. At that point, the doors were shut to the church, and there was no more going in and out for water or coffee or anything else. The doors were shut. Okay. Then the creed was said. Why is that? Before the creed, there is nothing... You're just sitting listening, right? So theoretically, you could just say, Oh, no, I just came to see what was going on. I'm not one of these Christians, right? But as soon as the doors are shut, and you say the creed, now you can be convicted of being a Christian. So they made sure that none of the catechumens were there, none none of the enemies were there, let none but the faithful remain. Okay? It was a safety measure. So that's why the creed is where it is, and that's why the creed marks the shift in the liturgy. Because up until then, you're just sitting, listening, hearing things. Right? But once you stand and say the creed, and once we then go into the prayers of the people, and go into the Eucharistic prayer, then... That's the, the mass of the, of the faithful. There's the mass of the catechumens, it's sometimes called, which is up everything up to the doors, the doors, or, or including the sermons. Yes. There's that mass of the catechumens, sense. yes, and then there's the mass of the faithful. Okay. An extension of that is if you travel, it's customary if you're going to visit a church to tell the priest that you're going to be there. Ahead of time. Ahead of time, and when you approach the altar to receive communion... They'll ask your name, and I have been asked, who is your bishop? Yeah. And sometimes, like, especially a Rocor church, um, they expect everyone to go to confession the day before, and, and to that priest. So you may go to a Rocor church, and they may say, oh, you know, we may not give you communion. Don't be offended. Don't be offended. They have their own way of doing it. Um, but closed communion exists for a reason. And it's better not to, it's best not to try to intrude on that, especially if you're traveling. Um, So, let me see, did I cover? Oh, so then the other thing we were going to talk about was begotten and proceeding. And especially, I want to talk about proceeding. Because when you do memorize the creed or when you look at the creed, um, those of us who used to be Episcopalians know we've changed the creed since we were there. Um, and it's, there's one little phrase, um, and, and it's called filioque. What was ori- so was it originally written with the filioque, or was it nope. added? Nope. Nope. It was originally written in Greek, and the phrase filioque was not there. Okay. When they translated it into Latin, 
it was originally not there. But what happened was there were Aryans in Spain and in the West um, that they were fighting, and so to, to the, the the West, even the Pope dismissed the filioque originally. Um, but and all it means is and the sun, right? And the sun. Because it's talking about the procession of the Holy Spirit. How does the Holy Spirit proceed? Um, you saw in this graphic. I hope it didn't shut down. Ah. Okay, here we go. Okay, so you see here it says the Father, the Son, and it's got the triangle with the, the, the Father at the top, right? Okay. The problem with the filioque is it turns that on its side. And so you have the Father and the Son up at the top, and then the Holy Spirit at the bottom. It was not originally meant to do that, but this because of this wording, then you had this doctrine kind of developed called double procession of the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> Theologians have met and discussed this because it is Jesus who says, and I will send the Holy Spirit the Comforter, right? If the creed was going to be written today, or by a bunch of theologians, they would probably say, who proceeds from the Father through the Son. That's kind of the agreed upon wording. Um, but the original creed does not have that, who proceedeth from the Father. Okay, It is actually written in silver at one of the doors of the Vatican. And, and um, Pope Benedict and... Metro, or Patriarch uh, Bartholomew actually stood in Rome and recited together the original Greek creed in Rome at the Vatican. The Vatican's take today on the filioque is that, no, no, we didn't add it to the creed. It's just part of our translation. Mm, I've read that. Okay, so they would not say that they went back and added it to the creed, which the original creed is in Greek. Okay, They would say in our translation of the creed, we added it as a, a fight, a bulwark against Arianism. Okay. Most of our Protestant churches who take their, their translation of the creed from the Latin also included it. In Anglican Orthodox talks that occurred back in the 70s, and, and there was, I think the last one was in 1980, the Anglicans agreed, yes, we should remove the filioque from the creed. Did they ever get around to it? No, because they were too busy changing everything else in their theology. <laughs> and not for the better. So, do you use the Athanasian Creed? We do not, in, in, or, in the East, we do not use the Athanasian Creed. Um, it, we know it exists, um, and, and the biggest problem with it is, like I said, one, it was originally written in Latin, two, it cannot be attributed to Athanasius, um, and three, it contains the Filioque. It's got a bunch of good stuff in there, and I would encourage all of you to read it. If you have an old book of common prayer or something, or just look up Athanasian Creed, as long as you ignore the filioque in there, it's a really, really good explanation of the Holy Trinity. But it has never actually been in popular use in the East. So um, that's why it's kind of dismissed. Uh, not that it's completely bad, but just because it's not Greek. Lack of a better term. Spray a little Windex on it. So, um, the last thing I want to cover, kind of as a as an the one of the best explanations of the Holy Trinity, is um, 
that we see, we see um, sometimes, one of the things I want to talk about too is sometimes you'll see some horrible depictions of the Trinity. In proper Orthodox iconography, we never depict the Father. Sometimes you'll see an old man and instead of a halo, he'll have like a Masonic looking thing on his head, like a (laughs) triangular halo. Okay? Don't look at it. It's awful. (laughs) It it was. And it's a really bad icon of the Trinity. Um, This is the icon of the Trinity that we use. Okay? This is a... It was... uh, this one is a Russian icon uh, by Rublev. And there's some things in here I want to point out that kind of point out why this is the Holy Trinity. Um, you know, the term Trinity does not appear in the Bible. Right? But it's interesting that this icon depicts uh, the story of the hospitality of Abraham, which is Genesis 18, 1 through 8. Um, And I'm just going to read the first three verses. Then the Lord appeared to him by the terebinth trees of Mamre, as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. So he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, and bowed himself to the ground, and said, My Lord, if I have now found favor in your sight, do not pass on by your servant. And then he proceeds to give them hospitality, food and drink. And they talk amongst themselves. There are other icons of this this event, but this is the one we use because it's been stripped of everything except really what makes it the Trinity. Now, it's interesting because I went back and looked at the Septuagint. And listen to this language. It says, Then the Lord, and the Greek there is otheos, meaning God. Kyrios is usually Lord, but this is otheos. Then God appeared to him. As he was sitting, so he lifted up, and behold, three men, Andres. You'll see they're depicted as angels, but that's not what the text says. The text says they were men. They appeared as men. Um, but yet he recognized the three men as God. Because then later he says, my Lord, if I have now found favor in your sight. He never addresses them as three men. He addresses them as God. So if there is an appearance of the Trinity in, you know, other than baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, that's in the New Testament. Here's the Trinity in the Old Testament. What about the angels who visited uh, Daniel in the lion's den? Were there three of them? Uh, not that I know of. No. No, and in fact, one of the things that, that's argued there is that the, wet, that who, the, you know, the three holy children in the furnace... That's always the eighth antiphon. Uh, that was one of the pre-incarnation appearances of Christ. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay, so. so it was actually Christ himself okay. who pulled Daniel out of the fire. That's a whole different class. Because I could go forever. I love that. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, so we have these three here. And, what, and, and in order, hopefully it won't time out on me, they represent... Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay? And it's hard because the colors are washed out, because this was done in the 1400s, and it's had a couple bad restorations, unfortunately. But here, one, what color are they all wearing? Blue. 
blue. What does blue represent? Divinity. So that's why the icons in in the, the church, both Christ and Mary are in blue. Um, and in fact, one, one of the things you will see is sometimes Christ you'll see depicted in blue over red. And Mary you'll see in red over blue. It's because Christ was divine, but yet hidden in his side is his humanity. And Mary was human, but inside was a touch of the divine. Right? So, on the Father, what's behind him is the house. Right? The Father is the source, the Godhead. Everything proceeds from the house. Okay? So, then the Son... Oh, and then you'll see a lot of gold. Gold is the color of kingship. So, that's another hint. So, then... His garment, this is the sun, his garments are blue and brown. Brown representing earth. Okay? Adam was made from earth. It wasn't red originally and just over time in the future did this? They think now it was brown. They think it was brown. They think it was brown. But red would do too because red represents humanity. But brown is kind of an earthy color. <coughs> You'll notice the cup in between them. The father is blessing it. But the son is about to touch it. Remember what Christ prayed in the garden? Lord, if it be thy will, let this cup pass from me. Okay? And what's behind him? The tree. The tree. The tree of life. The tree of the cross. Okay? So that's that represents the son. And then the Holy Spirit, um, you have green, which represents new life. And then behind him is a mountain, representing the spiritual ascent, the journey that we all have to, you know, <coughs> try to try to engage in of spiritual ascent, right? So the other thing to note is that there's two other things. One is these two are bowing their heads. The Son and the Holy Spirit are bowing their heads to the Father, but they're all seated on the same level. Okay, if one was, if they weren't all equal, one would be seated above the others, but they're all seated on the same level at the same table in a circle. They're seated in a circle. So this is traditionally an icon, the icon that you will see, for example, at Holy Trinity in Dallas. That you know where normally you would have a patron saint icon, this is the icon they have instead. It's the Holy Trinity. So. Um, any of the other icons that you see, like with the triangular head, and don't, don't, yeah, just don't. It doesn't. Is it of the Trinity? Yes, but it's the Father and the Son seated, and the Holy Spirit is maybe what you're talking about. Oh, like the dove, like like in the form of a dove or something. No. Okay. It's a symbol, anyway. But it was it was in the old missal. Oh, that's fine. That's probably fine. So I'm, I'm hoping that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> if not, we'll burn you to take later. So. Okay, so next week we're going to cover, and I don't know if I'm going to be able to find a video to cover it or not. If not, we'll just talk about it. But next week, like I said, this is the most dangerous topic we talk about because there's so many heresies that can arise. Next week we'll go through the seven ecumenical councils, which were attempts to understand and explain the Trinity, who is Christ, all these things. Actually, next week we may do Who is Christ instead, and then we'll cover the seven ecumenical councils, because the seven ecumenical councils cover both. 
a lot of people who say, if they say, what is the Orthodox Church? One of the short descriptions is, we are the Church of the Seven Ecumenical Councils. So we'll talk about what that means and everything else. 